It's a, a pleasure to be back with you. Uh, last Sunday, I, uh, I was with uh, my, my dad and my brother and uh, my daughter and son-in-law as we uh, enjoyed the brilliance of engineering in uh, Formula One. Uh, so glad some people have enough expendable income to make those glorious machines and to watch them going around at ever-increasing speeds. But, you know, there's practical, you know, there's, there's practical application. Various things have come from Formula One, like disc brakes and other things that make our cars safer. So it's all about, really, the common man. Uh, apparently, though, if you had a lot of money, you could see a lot more of the cars, but anyway. Uh, so thank you for that. Thank you, Steve, for uh, continuing our sermon series on relationships. Last week, we start, he, he preached on, on the relationships of child to parent. That is, there are certain expectations that, that God has for children. Uh, being sentient beings and having the ability to choose, uh, children have an opportunity, as the Lord lays it out, to honor their father and their mother. And it is a calling, not simply uh, on the basis of what a parent may earn as respect, but the very position of being a father or a mother. The great tragedy, of course, is when our parents do not uh, deserve that trust. But even then, the calling to love and care and pray for the best, even if a child may need to be wise about adult interaction with a parent. The honoring part doesn't change. What we hope to do and what we'll talk to you about this morning is how as parents we can create an environment where our children are honoring us and honoring the Lord because we honor the Lord and honor them in the context of what it means to raise them and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, to help them get a deeper understanding of who their loving Heavenly Father is through their interaction with their earthly mother and father, and the privilege we have of shaping and pointing our children to the richness of Christ. There's so much of what we'll talk about today that is certainly not unique to parenting. Uh, not all of us are parents. Not all of us will be called to be parents uh, in our lifetime. But the certain basics of relationships, the ways in which we interact as human beings created in the image of God, respecting one another and expecting, God, to grow and enrich who we are, that we might in ever greater degrees reflect who he is, there is a great deal that overlaps whether I am a good friend or a good parent. And I might contend, uh, I will contend, uh, that part of the challenge we may have in any given generation with parenting may be traced back to how good we are at being friends. If we don't know how to interact with one another, either male friend to male friend, female friend to female friend, or what we pull into our marriage relationships and how we are friends and communicating, the worse I would contend we are at being friends and knowing how healthy relationships work, the less likely we are to be terribly effective parents. Not that we have to befriend our children, but we will at some point. But even in raising them well, Knowing healthy interactions as a parent to a child has many overlaps with our abilities to care for one another as true friends, not only comforting, but encouraging, not only caring for, but challenging. Learning how to do that well between one another, I think, ad, uh, will pay dividends as we care for one another uh, 
in our parenting and encourage one another as we raise our children. This morning, I want us to uh, unpack this uh, great gift of parenting uh, from, we'll start in Deuteronomy 6. I'll read verses uh, 1 through 9. Hear now God's word. Again, just a reminder, we are about to see the children of Israel head into the promised land. They've spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they're about to head in. Here are some of the last words that Moses says. Now, this is the command and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be your heart, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets upon your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask again that we might rest in your word, that we might let your light lead us in a way that is true and straight. We pray, Lord, that we might be encouraged by the opportunity to lead our children, to encourage the covenant children of this congregation in the way of life, in the way of light. And we pray, Lord, that what is said this morning would be useful and beneficial for the building up of your people. But Lord, if anything is untrue or unuseful, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So the uh, act of parenting... Uh, is something that I've been at for somewhere in the neighborhood of 27 years. And I don't know that I know much more about it than I did when I started. There's a way in which it seems that you learn a few things and then you have to unlearn them uh, very quickly. Most of what you need to know is uh, something along the lines of listening and taking opportunities as opportunities present themselves. Uh, It is listening both to the Lord and listening to your children. Uh, We listen to them when they cry and they're infants uh, in an understanding of when they need food. We listen to them as they grow up uh, and as they express both uh, rightly their needs and sinfully their needs. Uh, We listen and determine and assess and we seek in those moments, and I think this is the wisdom of the Deuteronomy passage, to teach them in the moments of life. To teach them in the intimacy of walking with them in and through life, even in the seasons where we carry them. And the model of this, of course, is God himself. 
Just think of where we are in the text. God has been present with His people in the tabernacle, the, the, power, the, the pillar of fire by night and cloud. He has dwelt in the midst of them in the tabernacle. He has walked along the way with them over 40 years and has instructed them as a father and a mother instruct their children. The scholars point out that each of the law-giving sections in the first five books is, uh, especially in uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, are structured around knuckle-headed examples of Israel's life. So Israel does something that is foolish and silly and contrary to God's law, and God has a time of teaching. This is how you live. This is why you don't steal. This is why... We live this way. This is who I am. This is what it means to be my children. And so I'm prefacing this sermon under the context that what we mean is when we parent, we are, as the quote on the front of the worship folder indicates, teaching young apprentices what it is to take up the family business. Historically, uh, oftentimes trades and crafts were passed down to the next generation of children. Jesus grew up as a carpenter because his dad was a carpenter. You passed on the family trade. But there is a universal craft and trade to those who are children of God, and that is the business of redemption. The business of being a blessing to all the nations as God's called people to spread life and light. That is a universal calling of God's people. We may do it in 15 different or 15,000 different earthly callings and crafts, but we all have a same basic function, to be salt and light, as Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. We are training up our children to be salt and light. And we do so in the very life that God calls us to live. As we walk with them and they trundle along after us, we teach them what it is to be sons and daughters of the Most High. Because the family business is a business of creation and restoration, love and compassion, justice and mercy. So what are the ways in which we can take on this heavy load. And what do we teach, and how do we teach it? So I will first uh, say that, of course, that what we teach is love. Fundamentally, what we are teaching is love. God loves his creation. He built it out of a love for it. He created us in his image and loved us. He loved Adam and Eve. And we know from the Gospels that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is not incorrect to say that God is very much a God of love. Is that a complete description of God? Probably not. Is it a very full encompassing of how God interacts with that which he has created? Absolutely. Now, our challenge always is that in any culture, in any time, the definition of love is a little hard to nail down. It is motivated usually by a love of self and then mitigated or, or propagated without, uh, in, in our cultures. 
right? So love means always accepting me. Well, okay, what does that mean? Because God doesn't love us enough to leave us in the pig pen. Did he love us when we were in the pig pen? Yes. Does he expect that it'd be a good idea for us to stop eating the pods that the pigs are eating? Well, sure. Don't stay in the pig pen. I don't not love you because you're in the pig pen, but I love you too much to say, no, let me get you a pillow. Just stay in whatever horrible existence I found you in. It's sometimes hard to live the pig pen because at least I know the confines of that. I know the rules. Even if it's killing me, even if it's a horrible, smelly way to live, even if that addiction or that uh, enslavement is a horrible way to live, it's the hell I know versus the heaven I don't. So love is never for God leaving us where he finds us, but he always loves us where he finds us. So we have to define love. We have to define love biblically. Love means always protecting. Well, that all depends on how you define protecting. If you're a Sadducee and you don't believe in the resurrection, then this mortal coil is the most valuable thing you have because you only get 70, 80 years. And if that gets cut short, my stars, our existence is all over. I have to be fanatical about keeping myself safe, fanatical about keeping my wealth, fanatical about staying away from you if you're a danger to me. I can't love you if loving is keeping me safe because there is no resurrection. But oh, what happens if God is a God of the living? Then loving and protecting may mean something very different. We see this, we know this in those dramatic illustrations that we use time and time again, like Corey Ten Boom's family taking Jews into their home. They weren't keeping their family safe. That father lost a daughter. Not only did he lose his own life, he lost one of his daughters in the concentration camp because they cared for another. So whatever love means in keeping me safe, maybe keeping me safe is keeping me safe from my self-love, protecting me from an unbiblical view of life, which may put my mortal life in some danger. You see, we have to define love from a biblical perspective because it's not always the way our culture defines it. God's love in this passage is shown in his abundant generosity, and yet they're going to have to take the land. He's giving them and promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. He's promised them that they will possess it. The very blessing itself will be seen as a danger because you may stop loving me when you're sitting in houses you didn't build and drinking from vineyards that you did not plant. The very act of God's generosity to some degree puts his people at risk in their own selfishness. And they still have to take the land, which is defeating evil through battle, driving out the evil and replacing it with the light. And that battle, at least from a human perspective, from a temporal perspective, is risky. God teaches who we are and what robs us of our identity. God's definition of love is to say who we are. We were created in his image, 
holy and pleasing, male and female. He tells us that we rejected him and that he still loved us, but in the midst of that, we allowed sin to enter into our hearts, and he's rather direct about it. In his love for us, he reaffirms who we were and who he created us to be and why he created us, and he tells us that we have genuinely rejected that and that there are consequences to it. And he is sometimes unnervingly clear about what happens when we engage in our sinful desires. That's what robs us of our identity. It robs us of what it is to be his sons and daughters. Verses 1 and 3 tell us of his generosity. They tell us that we are then to raise our children in the discipline that we might enjoy that generosity. I tried to listen to a number. I did listen. I didn't try. I, I listened to a couple. should have listened to more. Modern podcasts about parenting. I'm, each generation has its own challenges in parenting. If we assume that what we want to do is raise our children to understand the nature of God's love, and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord to have a right understanding that we are in the business then of raising these young disciples, these young apprentices. And then we know that all good craft needs discipline. And what, what, I, what, what I struggled with, without being too old and crotchety, what I struggled with was the difficulty of the podcast that I listened to to embrace the richness of discipline. There was a constant fear that our children would feel unloved in the midst of discipline. It wasn't that there was no discipline. It wasn't that there wasn't uh, acknowledgement that children made bad choices. I don't know that I ever heard the word sin. Uh, but in these, in these podcasts, good Christian families trying to wrestle with what it is to raise children, there wasn't as much as I believe Scripture encourages, a positive view of what it is to discipline. Not punitive, not punishment, which we can all a deal, uh, agree with, that just simply taking my frustration for my child messing up my reading time and punishing them for that is probably unhealthy. But once we've dealt with the abuse, what does it mean to embrace the joy and opportunity of shaping and forming a heart and a life that in its sinful nature needs to be disciplined and changed. And we know that that's true of a, of a sinful nature because it was true of the unsinful nature of Christ. He learned, Hebrews tells us, through what he suffered. If Christ learned what it meant to be the son's father, I mean the father's son, well, dyslexia, the Father's Son, how much more so will my covenant children who are trapped in the darkness of sin need to be disciplined in such a way that they too can formulate an understanding of what it is to be God's children. If you haven't, I encourage you uh, to listen to the Bible Project's uh, three videos on the bad words of Scripture. The three words that Scripture uses to unpack the human condition of who we are in our sin, transgression, and iniquity. And I'm going to run through these quickly because they are 
helpful for how we can discipline and structure our children's lives as we engage with them in gospel love, loving them enough to, uh, to let them know that our love doesn't change, but our love is oriented towards their growth. We love them enough to see them grow and change. Uh, the first word, which we usually translate sin, is uh, kata, which is missing the mark. This is the moral failure. This is the Ten Commandments. Because again, what's the mark that we want to teach our children? What do we want them to achieve? The two great commandments, love God and love neighbor. How do I raise my children to love God? Certainly it is telling them the good gifts of God, but it's also going to be modeling my own humility and love for God. How is it that my children see my love for God? And it's not just in the simple things like reading Scripture where my kids can see and encouraging that, although that's there. It is seen in the fruit of the Spirit love that allows me to both be loving and gentle with my children, even as I discipline and direct. Love of God comes in my ability to express God's love to my kids in the full nuance of what that is in a biblical understanding been said before that uh, non-believers, when they ask us certain questions uh, or state certain radical uh, lifestyle choices that they've made, look for a response in a Christian's face. And if we cringe, they imagine that that's probably the way God looks at them as well. That's no less true of our children. I have a very hard countenance when I'm angry. I don't have much hair. I have very deep furrows. I have a picture of me looking angry at my mother at my daughter's wedding reception. I can prove how hard my face is. And yet there were certain times my kids have said that even that face had a measure of love because they knew that I was not simply angry because I was upset, but I was concerned for them. That face that was firm was not unloving. Now that's the grace of God because it's not in my own countenance. Sin is something to be angry at. Our children failing to love God. And then the second part, failing to love what? Their neighbor. And so if you look at the two uh, halves of the Ten Commandments, the first five, first four, love God, first table. Transition. Honor your father and your mother. Second table, how we love our neighbor. Two great headings of the two tablets of the law. And so the desire is not simply some mechanical sense of not wanting a Formula One car or the beautiful other cars that I saw parked around and coveting. And so we want to teach our kids not to covet. What we want them to know is that they have a loving and generous God who gave us the land, who will never withhold that which is good for us. Therefore, I can love my neighbor and be generous and be grateful when they flourish even more than I do. Because that's loving my neighbor, because I have a God who loves me. And I want them to learn that heart and spirit. The next way in which God describes what we are being disciplined, how we are being shaped, what we need to wrestle against. Another way of looking at the fallen condition for of our children and ourselves is a pesha, 
Pesha is usually translated transgression or transgressor. Uh, that word really reinforces the fact that I lie a lot. I lie to get what I want. I lie to make myself look good. I am not straight. I am crooked. I have a tendency to be crooked because if there's enough bends in the road, you can't see the trajectory of my life. Heck, I can't even see where I've been. I don't have to look back. I just went around a corner. The highway of the Lord, Isaiah talks, talks about, is lifted up, it is well lit, and it is straight. And we are called in this passage to what? Teach our children along the way. And that language in the Old and the New Testament, and we all know, many of us know, that uh, the early church was called people of the way, a straight way, a very clear way, a way that others could observe. And letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Of being people who are not those who betray but those who are honest, and to teach our children the value of that and to model and to live in and through it. The last word is avon. Avon is, um, oh, wait, backward boy. That was avon. Dyslexia. Pesha uh, is the, uh, avon is the betrayal. Uh, and Pesha is um, the crooked. As we seek to live with our children in an honest, in a straight, heading towards a goal, we follow our, young, our older brother. Jesus did not miss the goal. Jesus kept his word, and Jesus walked a straight line to the cross and to the Father. He did that on our behalf, that our children might rest in the sure knowledge that this journey of discipleship is not one where they save themselves, but they have the participation of seeing God save others. As they see their own redemption, they have the ability to share that light with others. We do it in our daily lives. We do it in those moments that are teachable. Which is why the quote is on the front of the worship folder about the darkness. Because if the calling is to bring the love of God into a dark world, if the calling is to be salt and light and disciples, we must be careful in a society that it is increasingly obsessed with safety, that we do not miss what is in itself something of a dangerous calling. We cannot isolate our children from the darkness of this world so that they are unprepared when the darkness comes to be salt and light in the midst of it. There is no way of avoiding it this side of glory. There is the opportunity when they are young to introduce it to them in bits and pieces where you can talk to them and they still trust you. We can't turn off the news. We can't address the issues 
that are so prevalent in our community that require things like foster care and safe families. What an opportunity it will be for us to help our young covenant children know what it is to love the other when those who have been most at risk in our community, we have the privilege to serve, serve within the body in times when it'll be difficult and challenging and dangerous. God did not protect his own son. And most of the time when I bring that up, people say, well, I'm not Jesus. Oh, yeah, but we're supposed to follow Jesus. And I don't see any place where Jesus constantly walks only in the areas where it is safe. We are called to see those in need, and we are called to train our children to see. We live in a time where we can isolate ourselves to a degree that most of human history has never had the opportunity to isolate from pain and suffering and darkness and sin and brokenness. But if we are to teach our children the family business, to redeem, to be those who redeem, we're going to have to walk with them on a straight path through dark nights. The light will be the light of the gospel. It will and can illumine our feet. But we cannot avoid taking our children on the road that God would have them go to be salt and light, to be those who bring love and mercy, to bring those who learn to love their enemy as themselves. As parents, the only way we can do that well is to model our own confession and dependence. So the last encouragement I have is that our children knowing our fears, our brokenness and sin, age appropriately, gently, but if they know us to be those who are quick to repent, growing in Christ-like character, humbled by the gospel, and called into the darkness, they will follow. I often wonder if the challenge of parenting well is the challenge of admitting how weak I truly am and believing that I can actually lead in brokenness and in my failure. But the only way that works, of course, is if I'm pointing to the one who will never fail them, who cannot fail them, and will lead them through. It's getting out of the way to make sure that he is the only hero in their lives. He is the only one worth their admiration. And in that, they can see the beauty of what it is to be a son or a daughter of the Most High. Christ himself does all that he does, he says, for the honor of the Father in heaven. May we model that for our children. And in so doing, may they follow us into the darkness with the light of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask again.
that you be gentle. Do not give us more than we can bear, but may we trust that we can bear more than we can imagine in you. As parents, Lord, give us patience and kindness and gentleness. But Lord, may we always keep our eye on where we must go and where our children must go with us to love you and to love our neighbor. May we be truthful. May we follow you in that what is straight. In Christ's name, amen. The ushers would